So kids from the college have an easy place to integrate and move into, you know, post-college. And that's what I think, you know, there's this other kind of topic of small-scale development, the middle market of private equity and real estate that I think is going to be really, really attractive and something that's going to be very interesting over time, especially as we see more building and zoning reforms to make it conducive to build that type of product. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you build financial independence through real estate investing and help you build your wealth on Main Street. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Matt Ryan. Today, we're digging into his company's strategy for co-living and developing affordable housing in several markets around the country. We dig into the business model, how they analyze markets and properties, and so much more. Great way to build high-demand rental housing in areas that need it and need affordable housing. Great way to invest, make a profit, and make a positive impact on a community. I'm your host, Taylor Vogt, and to date, I have invested in, acquired, partnered on, or otherwise had a hand in over $150 million of commercial real estate. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. I really, really do. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, and I do mean this every single time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content. You're building wealth on Main Street along with us. You're taking control of your financial future. And that's what this show is all about. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is Matt Ryan. We're digging into co-living and his company's strategy for investing with a co-living investment strategy. Great conversation, great impact on communities. Without any further ado, here we go. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about your business and how you invest in in real estate? Yeah, I'm Matt Ryan. I'm the principal over at Revive. We're a real estate private equity firm specifically focused on co-living right now. But our primary focus has been community revitalization projects. So call it impact investing, you know, chasing market leading returns in a real estate space, but also focusing on, you know, projects that have a specific impact on the community that we're investing. I love it. I love it. And in this world where we talk about, you know, having an impact, positive impact on the community and everything, I think it's important to dig past the pardon the pardon the term, but dig past the buzz sure. is right and talk about. Yeah real ways in which, you know, you make a difference. So how does your company actually, you know, make a difference in the community? Yeah, a lot of what we focus on is we call thesis-driven real estate. So we're focusing on large socioeconomic issues, say, within, you know, the macro environment, within the community, within, you know, the larger, you know, nation, if you will. And then we focus on products specifically to that. To us, one of our big missions was to kind of tackle this innovative approach to affordable housing, right? Which getting past all the jargon, you know, how do we make housing affordable for people in major cities? We focus on a specific demographic. That's the 22 to 35 demographic. We're able to basically produce almost a brand new, you know, fully renovated product to 22 to 35 year olds. That's anywhere between 15 up to 30% cheaper than a studio apartment in the same community. Obviously, with co-living, you're having shared common spaces, 
but it also reduces a lot of friction that people are normally coming across when trying to rent that type of product, you know, say through Craigslist for Mayshare and so on and so forth. And there's a lot of other, call it larger issues that we feel like we're tackling and getting in there as far as we do feel like co-living kind of helps alleviate some of the gentrification by by means of reducing the um, the competition on the, the existing supply of housing that's there in these up and coming neighborhoods. We're focused, we're very much a neighborhood focused investor. And that's kind of the other piece too, is in addition to not only investing in these communities, the investment company Revive, we return 1% of the pre-tax profits back into the communities where we invest. So we kind of create what we consider just like a little ecosystem where, you know, these are up and coming markets. You know, some of them are slightly distressed in some instances. And, you know, we try to find nonprofits, community organizations, in the community that are trying to bring the community and direct, you know, invest directly within or donate, you know, directly with them. And I think it also kind of curbs a larger issue that we also see within the development space where there's a lot of nimbyism, you know, a lot of fear of developers coming in, feeling like they're kind of taking something away from the community versus giving back. And you know, that's part of the, the other aim and, and what we do and why we do it. Great. Okay. So for our listeners who haven't heard of co-living, maybe don't know what that means. Can you define that for us? So everybody's, you know, on the, the same footing here, understanding what co-living Yeah. Means. So it's a rinse a bedroom model and it's turnkey. So instead of having to go to a Craigslist roommate share where you may be interviewing with multiple people, trying to rent a room from someone versus trying to, you know, rent a studio bedroom or trying to find your own, say three or four or five bedroom apartment and then find a roommate. You know, that's classically been a way that people in, in large measures have tried to bring their rent down you know, a studio may rent for $3,000, but you could find maybe a two bedroom in San Francisco that rents for four. You know, if you find a roommate, now all of a sudden there's a big cost differential. So it's very common, you know, in major metros like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, so on and so forth to see that happen. But again, there was always a lot of friction, meaning how are we going to split utilities? How am I going to furnish it? What happens when someone moves out? You know, which a lot of people who aren't in the business of property management you know, that, that creates friction on their end as well. And so what co-living operators have done is they've just come in and basically made that a very much a turnkey model. A lot of the operators or property managers or have their own technology apps where people can do 3D, you know, tours and so on and so forth. And from a developer perspective, you know, we're just ex- exactly that. We're, we're putting in a high-performing operating company, property management company that kind of guides that process for people and makes it very simple. And on the flip side of that, you know, people, again, they're just worried about renting a bedroom from us and are able to save, you know, anywhere from say 200 up to maybe even $500 a month, you know, versus trying to go out and rent a studio or one bedroom themselves. There's also a communal element to that. You know, we provide cleanings and services and all that, but there's also community events that a lot of people try to engage on. Sharing space isn't always the easiest thing for people. So, you know, you want to create a high level of engagement and a high level of sense of community and belonging and, you know, kind of work through just some of those issues that people run into is from a roommate situation as well. Absolutely. Great. I think having roommates, you know, for me personally, I probably did that a lot longer than I really needed to in my twenties. I'm in my mid thirties now and everything. So, you know, get married and all that stuff. stuff. So things have changed, but that 200 to $500 a month really does add up quite a bit over time can give you a nest egg to invest and make a big difference in your life down the road. So, you know, i definitely support, especially younger people, you know, living together, save some money because it can make a big difference in your life in the long run. So regarding actually finding a property or, or a market that works with this model, how do you go about that? How do you, you approach it? You've mentioned a few 
markets here that are some of the most expensive real estate markets, frankly, on on the planet, yeah. let alone you know within the country. So how do you go through the process of finding a market and a property and everything along those lines to get a deal that works? Yeah, it's funny. It's very scientific. And then it's also not scientific, right? I was joking with my <laughs> wife. Yeah, I said, I mean, I still, and I was kind of, you know, doting on myself, if you will. I was like, I still got it. Oh, sorry. I just had a video or a video issue here pop up. I said, I, st- I think I've still got a knack for picking markets. You know, we were the market that we're in in Denver. I was reading the redevelopment plan that was put on through the city of Denver and all the infrastructure improvements and all the things that's get- getting ready to happen in that community, you know, for the course of the next decade. And I was just completely blown away and very excited. You know, so a lot of it is touch and feel, but, you know, on the back end of that, as we've grown and progressed as a firm, it's that's where it gets very, very detailed. A lot of data analysis, uh, you know, a lot of data from multiple sources looking for and a lot of it also just kind of starts with look breaking it down by zip code and then analyzing those zip codes you know we kind of look at those neighborhoods that are starting to be swarmed by less affordable neighborhoods that have the key components you know really good school districts access to transit we look for those things within our neighborhoods that we're trying to invest but we also look to where maybe there's a pathway of getting there right there's incremental improvement or spending or infrastructure improvements made by the city. You know, that fundamentally reshapes neighborhoods and changes a lot in those neighborhoods. And that's where we start getting into the thesis driven, the why, you know, that also creates a lot of displacement. Again, it creates a lot of competition for existing housing stock. But, you know, just I could I could spend a half hour kind of going over all the different components of what we do. But it's a very, very detailed process and, you know, composition of a lot of different data sets looking for growth you know, looking for economic, not just growth, but I think the word is vitality maybe, or, or, or you know, just diversification. And, you know, of course we're looking for that, that also that key component for us, which is an influx of our demographic, which is young professionals. You know, it's pretty easy to nail them down, you know, in major cities, they're typically looking for all the things that, you know, we all know and love, good access to transit, bike lanes, good vibrant retail, walkable, bikeable type neighborhoods, with a close proximity to downtown, they want to be where the action is. And so that's good. And then obviously in a very affordable market relative to its peers. And I say peers, you know, the surrounding zip codes or neighborhoods. Makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting how, you know, successful real estate investors and, and take note, you're focusing on, again, a lot of those economic factors. First, you're not just going around and looking at, say, medium home, median home price values or anything like that. First off, yeah. you're actually first starting with the economic condition of the area. Yeah, and oftentimes you're trying to find, you know, for Revive, we're looking at that market that's very early on the bell curve, you know, very much an up and coming space. Because from our perspective, that provides a much larger capacity for return versus going into a fully stabilized, high buried entry market where homes may be selling for half a million or a million dollars a piece, right? That market's kind of already developed. And we, we kind of look for those greater, more up and coming markets. Great. Okay. Yeah. Definitely love to talk about finding specific properties and what you look for as my my next question is because of this model, maybe the the maybe you wind up because you're renting out a number of bedrooms, maybe you actually wind up with higher rent coming in because you're breaking it up and everything. So maybe you can afford a slightly nicer property. I don't know if that's the case. So walk us through actually analyzing a given, you know, property and how it's gonna work as a, a business. Yeah, I mean the thing about co-living is it's no different than any traditional real estate deal. You have to purchase what we consider a good cost basis, you know, and we love our nomenclature in real estate. So what does that mean? 
It's your entry price, you know, and your entry price, we focus on value add, heavy renovations, you know, repositioning the property to make it hit our objectives and fit our needs over the long term. And we're also starting to incorporate a development model as we grow as a firm. You know, those are inherently complex projects. So your purchase price, what you pay for it, being able to accurately project what your construction costs are going to be, you know, which is an ever-changing, evolving process in itself. And then understanding, you know, obviously what your long-term operating costs are and being extremely conservative and all those assumptions and looking at this broader macro picture, you know, that's kind of all what goes into it, right? So it's, it's a, it's a, but the, the key component of it all is beyond of just what does it take to put it together? Who are the team members and having the successful team? It's really about purchase price, you know, day one, what do you pay for it? You know, what do your short-term and long-term cash flows look like once you're stabilized? And what's the margin of error that you really have in that deal? You know, and for us, that's fundamental to everything we do at Revive. You know, we're still a, a very much a traditional real estate private equity firm and we utilize those fundamentals in everything we do. Great, great. Okay. So how much do does like local regulations play <laughs> into these 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 ways? You've mentioned NIMBYism, but um, you know, you've over time, you know, I think I've heard things about some areas have rules that you can't have more than four unrelated people yep. living together in the same building and you know, things that really kind of get into the weeds when you're in this particular model. So how does that you know, factor into what Yeah, it factors in a lot because it just basically impedes the growth of the type of housing that we're talking about, right? Specifically for co-living, it pushes people back into say like micro apartments, which I kind of consider a subset of the co-living area because it's a micro apartment. Someone may have a small stove or a small refrigerator, but you're still typically sharing large common areas, right? Again, to get the, to that naturally affordable price point for people without having to bring in tax credits and subsidies, yeah, that's a whole other process in itself, you know, and that's, that's kind of the challenge is, but also the opportunity is that zoning and plant and, and building departments, specifically zoning departments are really starting to get hip to the fact that, you know, these unrelated individuals, like they were in the twenties and thirties are, you know, they're not soliciting for prostitution. <laughs> they're not doing drugs, <laughs> right, exactly. you know, they're not the houses that people are trying to you know, when we put those things into the zoning code, these are 20, 30 somethings young professionals, right? And so while the cities are a little bit slow to adapt and change, they are changing. They are seeing this as a viable, you know, housing type, if you will. I mean, we need all housing types, frankly. You know, it's not just co-living or micro. We need everything. But they are starting to kind of come come to the table. And so I think there's you're going to continue to see more and more cities wake up to this and say, wow, this is a really great great way for developers of a 100-unit complex to diversify their unit mix, too. And so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it's still insanely difficult, and it's not just the zoning reforms and, you know, call it, you know, these, yeah, it's just reforms that need to happen to make way for this housing. I mean, we're looking at a massive, massive understaffing across building departments, and planning departments all across the country. And, you know, you've seen timeframes literally double overnight when it comes to getting and seeking approvals. So we have a very exorbitant headwind ahead of us in the development space and real estate investment space. And you know, at a time whenever, frankly, city coffers are starting, probably going to be emptying a little bit. So it does get a little scary and it's very, very difficult to navigate it as an investor. You know, but you really just have to take ownership and constantly being engaged and building relationships with the people at those offices to really get accurate timelines. Otherwise, you know, that's that's a risk premium that you it'd be very challenging to underwrite. 
Fair enough. I, I think one of the things you learn after investing in real estate for a number of years and through different cycles is that these ups and downs happen and you're not always able to predict what the next down is going to look like or what it's going to feel like, but you kind of get used to the fact that there's going to be a down at some point, there's going to be risk and you just get a little more comfortable with that idea and, and riding it through. So, okay. You also mentioned about these deals being heavier lift. And I think that means different things to different people. So for some folks that might mean strip it down to the studs. We're going to rework this entire property with others. It's a little less than that for your deals. What does heavy lift really mean in terms of the rehab? It means we're putting over between 20 to 50% of the capital of the purchase price back into the deal. And that was always been our focus because we're my background's in construction. You know, we always felt that that was a great opportunity for us to provide a really good return to our investors, you know, while mitigating that risk, which is the construction risk, the development risk, because we knew how to navigate that process. And, you know, a lot of deals, like for instance, some of the offices that were previously residential deals that were now converting back to residential that are fairly small in scale, but they fit for us given the equity pool and the debt pool that we had available to us. There's not a lot of small scale developers trying to take those deals on at that level of complexity, right? So it provided opportunity. You know, no one wants to trudge through that mud. And for us, we were able to take advantage of that in a point in time when the office market was extremely soft. And, you know, and that was kind of solidified the first couple key deals for us in co-living. I think long-term co-living is strictly a development play. You know, I think there's always an opportunity to renovate or take an existing asset that has a really cool architectural component, you know, and convert it to co-living. And we were also looking at co-working, but it's very challenging. There's not a lot of existing product out there, you know, and we're trying to fill a need. We're trying to fill a gap, you know, and we want to do this at scale because we see the opportunity, not just for us, but for our investors. You know, so for long term, I think we'll see a lot more development into our pipeline where we can, quote, build to suit and just diversifying our product type along the traditional studios, one bedrooms and two red bedrooms. So that way, when someone says, you know what, I'm ready to get ditch these roommates. I want a place in my room. It's an easy down the hall or the floor below, you know, versus moving over to a new asset. And you're seeing that with very successful developers, you know, who are doing this at scale and dominating the sector right now. And, you know, I think it's a great model and, and something we're actively pursuing. Nice. That is actually, that is a pretty cool idea. That is a, a good way to retain a good customer, which is what all businesses really want totally. to do if they want to be successful. Yeah, we want to focus on those people who are getting ready to enter the, the home buyer market or a renter by necessity. That's that's pretty much all we focus on. And not just in co-living, we were doing workforce housing value add before as well, but we've kind of put that on pause. So, Or who are completely sick of having roommates and don't necessarily <laughs> need to anymore. You might hit yeah, that yeah, at exactly. some point, but hey. Okay. So this, this model, I would have it really seems to me that it's it's pretty correlated with larger markets, denser markets, obviously more expensive markets, which, you know, to me is again, you're, and I'm making some assumptions here, but, you know, give me a little rope. You got tech folks and, you know, the, the, the talk that has been, was a lot more common early in the pandemic. Now that we're, you know, three years in, we're not really talking about it anymore, but the work from home, you know, trend, I live in Virginia. We had so many people move here to the Richmond area from from really all over the country because it's a nice place to live and it's relatively affordable, especially compared to San Francisco and Denver yeah. and so on. How does that how, how do you see that impacting your, you know, business model if you have, you know, a lot of folks just basically fleeing the fleeing these larger cities for more affordable areas? Or is that kind of 
maybe a bit overblown. It's, you know, it's, it's there, but it's not really going to change the overall trajectory. Of yeah. I mean, it's a trend that you certainly can't ignore. You know, do I think that's coming out of the last recession, we, we always make this reference to this one quote, 75% of Brookings report in 2016, I think it was 75% of all the high paying jobs we're in cities of a million or greater. Has COVID accelerated, you know, work from home? I think at one point, work from home, remote work represented like maybe, and check, fact check these numbers, you know, maybe 6%. Maybe <laughs> we're up to 10 to 12 and we're going to grow to 20. You know, but that's still a substantial amount of office space. And, and the, the thing is, is these high paying jobs that people are pursuing, I still are going to believe that they're going to be produced in these larger metros. I think the secondary markets totally, you know, can steal some of the thunder because really, frankly, the urban cores in these major cities kind of blew their chance with the millennials in the last, you know, bull run to really perform and produce enough housing. And a lot of people were just becoming very exhausted. And if they're entering this, the home buyer market, you know, millennials, Gen Z's are going to do the same thing. I still think there's going to continue to be a flight to those markets, but I think it's very important to differentiate that those people are oftentimes moving to those markets because they're trying to purchase a home versus trying to get a high paying job that's, you know, three to four to five, maybe even eight years away from college. And so, you know, for us, the long-term trim still is going to be that cities are going to, people are going to want to live in those major cities, especially younger people, and that they're still going to need and or desire an affordable place to live and that the market is for all the reasons we've kind of talked about, it's just going to continue to be more difficult and more challenging to secure that type of housing. And that's where co-living and micro and affordable by design is really fitting that need in the near term until we can kind of reach a level of supply. So, you know, I think it's a good blend. I mean, I don't see, I don't not see a co-living facility moving into a secondary market like Richmond, you know, but instead of maybe a hundred beds, maybe it's a 20 to 30 bedroom and it's broken up across five to six units. You know, and maybe it's centrally located in the Richmond downtown area. So kids from the college have an easy place to integrate and move into, you know, post-college. And that's what I think, you know, there's this other kind of topic of small-scale development, the middle market of private equity and real estate that I think is going to be really, really attractive and something that's going to be very interesting over time, especially as we see more building and zoning reforms to make it conducive to build that type of product. We really limited it over the last three to four decades. And I think you're starting to see a lot of that unwind. And I think a lot of these local municipalities, these secondary, even call them tertiary markets, are going to say, hey, we want to, you know, we want to sustain that growth. We don't want to create a massive bureaucracy. We want to, we want to retain these people and get these young people in because they're going to stay in our tax base for the next 20 years. Right. And, and so I do think that the cities have kind of lost, like I said, their, their moment in the sun. I think they're going to have it again. But to me, it just is an exciting opportunity to look at other markets where we can imprint our, our product, you know, just at a smaller scale. So, Absolutely. As a nation, we're largely not building enough housing and haven't been for a very long time. I also wonder to what extent your, your, your product, your property is catering to, you know, somebody that's going to be able to move across the country and work from home might be, you know, somebody that works at Facebook, they're earning a pretty substantial salary. Mm -hmm. And may not have really needed to, you know, have affordable, you know, co-living type of housing. Your your target tenant may be, you know, somebody in their twenties who works in this service industry, or you know, not at a tech company or something. Nonprofit workers, teachers, you know, people who work within the city. You do see a lot of tech talent, you know, because they also don't want to be tied down, you know. And there's a feeling, again, kind of a frictionless service where it's like 
hey, I'm signing a 12-month lease. You know, if I don't like this situation, I can I can move on to the next one. And you saw WeWork with their WeLip brand. You know, there's a digital nomad component of co-living. You're, you're starting to see some of the hotels actually starting to move into this market to try to create, you know, like the Marriott's, you know, so to speak, a national, if not global brand where people can feel like they can access this anywhere, just like the co-working places have. I'm not going to say that that's not viable and that, you know, that's not an opportunity for people. Hell, let people move in. I think the more the merrier, but I do think there's a lot of inherent challenge to that, right? Just because I don't think that, I think the time period and the size and scale of that marketplace is going to shrink very quickly, right? Those people are going to grow up after four or five years, get tired of traveling, and they're still going to want to buy a house <laughs> and, and, and take, put down roots, right? Really create a sense of community outside of just a roommate, oper- you know, situation. And so, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think, it, I think the landscape in Europe is very much more far advanced in co living product. And they, you know, they've done it on a lot of very small scales in addition to have kind of these larger, you know, brands, you know, it's, it's here in the U S it's still, it's still early, man. It's, it's really an exciting market. I think it's just going to completely blow up and there's even a senior housing component to it as well. Wow. Cool. Great. Well, I'm glad we dug into it today. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Matt, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah, the best investment I ever made was I had house hacked. I didn't know I was house hacking at the time, but I had started my business, had a little bit of capital and bought a foreclosed duplex in an up and coming neighborhood. And if you go to our website, there's actually a story about the Miss Pam project, which actually segued into what is now revived, this larger thesis of community revitalization and focusing on thesis driven real estate. But at the end of the day, that was what catapulted me because at the time I had been in construction for five and a half years. I took that money away from a stockbroker who had barely gotten 3%, you know, and so it was, it was really an eye opening. You know, once I moved to San Francisco and I sold that deal and at 1031 into another deal, it was very eye opening to me, you know, the, the power that real estate can have as far as creating wealth and building equity and doing so, you know, kind of that sweat equity model, you know, so not only was it a great investment, but it really it drove me into my career, you know, so it really has a soft place in my heart and it really kind of carried me through to this next phase of my life. But yeah, at the end of the day, it was also, it was a pretty killer, it was a pretty killer deal. I did really well on it. So nice. The best of all worlds. I love it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst yeah. investment you ever made? Uh, I mean, I would say it's kind of a twofold for me. For one, I've always been very, very independent. And so when I started Revive, I didn't take on any partners. You know, I tried, I treated it like a startup and I kind of, boot, I mean, I did just totally bootstrap the company. And, you know, in retrospect, 
while I've built a substantial amount of wealth and I've continued to kind of turn that wealth over and grow it, you know, over the six to seven years period, you know, the time and the energy suck and the brain damage that I did by, by kind of going into, you know, a a business that I really knew nothing about on the construction side, right. You know, private equity is far more vast than just construction, doing it with no partners or just trying to figure it out myself. It was, it was tough, man. The fact that I'm standing here, I think it's just a testament to my, just kind of a little bit of blind luck and just inability to quit on <laughs> but you know i would say a better investment would have been to find a couple key partners you know split the pie a little bit i think we would have seen more growth and scale or maybe find a model that i could have cut a key investor in venture capital whatever i think it would have been a much better model i think bootstrapping is really really challenging and i think that's why you've seen venture capital move in and see an investment move in the way that it has because i just think it's a really Unless you're starting, you know, a laundry mat or, a, you know, a, a laundry, you know, a laundry cleaning business or a small service business, I think it's really challenging to go from the ground up and do it on your own. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of encourage many people to start that way. You know, unless you have a solid, tr- you know, track record experience in the industry. A very quick small one is making what I consider warm body hires. You know, and that's that's kind of a product of being this time-strapped entrepreneur, you know, who's trying to get out from underneath their business. A lot of times you just pull people off the street that you're not necessarily, you know, you do a couple interviews, you feel good and you're like, warm body, here you go. (laughs) And you throw them into the deep end. (laughs) You know, warm body hires can turn into what I call energy vampires. Making the wrong hires when when you're early on in a business, as challenging as it is to get to that next level and just have somebody do something it can create a lot of friction in your business. It can create a lot of headache and it can totally derail your initiative. So, you know, for me, those two things I look at, it's not my, not only has it cost me money, but it has cost me an exorbitant amount of time and my energy. And that's been, you know, that's been a big challenge for me as an entrepreneur and something I would really caution people, you know, to take your time and kind of do it right as much as possible. Nice. Well, very important lessons. Warm body hires. I wasn't sure exactly what you meant at first, but no, I got you. Yeah. Just having a warm body in the yeah. chair was not the right not the right answer. It makes a lot of sense. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? I go I go back to the and I've I mentioned this one a lot for, for the sake of sounding trite, I would almost want to switch it, but Howard Marks is the most important thing. He always talks about the things that you don't know are the most risky elements of investing. You know, and so, you know, that's a really bucket, right, of things. And I think as investors, it's always really simple, just kind of like with this idea of an entrepreneur, I've got this idea, I've identified this market opportunity, I'm going to go, I'm going to go after it, right? And I think that's totally applaudable. I don't want to, I don't want to stop anyone from that. But, you know, doing the deep, deep dive and thinking about what you don't know, what are you missing? I call, I tell my team all the time, what are the bogeys? You know, those are the things that are lurking in the background that are in your blind spot. You can't see they're going to come up and they're going to jump up and bite you and and kind of implode on you. And I really, to me, taking the time to slow down, to really see what's around you, your full perimeter, you know, not just, just this, the full perimeter. I think it's important. And I think in today's tech driven world, you know, we constantly want to, change and switch from one thing to another and do five, six, seven, eight things in a day. I think sometimes I try to allocate like my Mondays and just sit down for an hour or two and just really get deep in there. What What is it that's kind of sticking me? What's been bothering me? You know, what's the element of my business that 
I feel the most insecure or that has really been in my subconscious a lot. And I think identifying with those and taking, giving yourself the time and space to get to those things and not only just think about them, but to then put a plan together and attack it, talk to your team members, you know, and get their input. You know, I think those are the things that people, as we progress, need to identify more and more and more and more, especially when you're taking other people's money investing, because those are the things that are always going to creep up. And when they creep up and you know, you know, that that thing was there, it's really painful because you knew it was there the whole time, but you just, you didn't have the time to identify it, right? You didn't take the time to really put a plan of attack or a plan B in place, you know, and that's, to me, that's always, I call it the on deck circle. You, know, you always got to have someone or something on deck there. You always have to have your plan B and, and especially in personnel, a small, you know, growing company. I think it's super important. So I know there's a lot to chew off on there, but it's, to me, that's a really tough one to answer because it's, you know, it all kind of circles around those kind of key components. I get a lot of folks who are successful uh, business owners and real estate investors. It's hard to pick the best lesson you've ever learned because there have probably been a lot of good ones along the way. So oh, it's, man, it's, it's kind of tough. It's to do, countless. But, uh... <laughs> it would be impossible <laughs> it to put it all into one, you know, and, and, and I applaud the people who are thoughtful and you know precise enough to nail it down to one or two things i think i think that in itself is a is a mastery of a process and time right to really be able to identify that absolutely well thank you so much for joining us today and teaching us about your business and investment model if folks want to reach out if they want to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that where can they track yeah, you re-viv.com that's revive.com go to our website there's a link on there for my calendar my phone number's there, available, my team, everybody. It's all right there. Just snoop around, take a look at it. If anything piques your interest, just book a call and we'll be happy to coordinate. Love it. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging the, with the content and you're building wealth on Main Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.